I think it's safe to say that in just about every big city across America, it's pretty unusual to see a tractor driving in an urban environment. It's only been in Nashville that I think I've been stuck behind a John Deere toting a parcel of bachelorettes and pink cowboy hats, wooing at every single sight that the overall driver would point at down Broadway. Nashville's just different. I love it, but it's just different. So an introduction to the character of Amos may not seem as strange to us living near Nashville, this unusual city, but Amos was no ordinary guy. If you can get in your mind a picture of a tractor putt-putting up to the steps of the main public office building in this big city, I think you'll begin to picture Amos. Almost 2,800 years ago, a country boy arrived in the big city of Bethel with one distinct purpose, to preach to them what the Lord had laid on his heart. With that introduction already, you can see that Amos is very different from his contemporaries like Isaiah who served in the court of the king. He's different from Jonah who was called and and moved to this spot and that spot and this spot all the way across the sea. And he's different from Hosea. He wasn't called to marry a, a wife of whoredoms as Hosea was. That's an interesting book of the Bible. He's totally different from most of his contemporaries. And he is as country as cornbread and is about as out of place in downtown Bethel or Bethel as you could possibly imagine. Listen to how he describes himself. He calls himself a mere shepherd and a poor sycamore fig farmer who one day, while he was tending his flock, the Lord burdened him with a sermon to preach in Amos chapter 7, verse 14. He says, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Verse 15, then the Lord took me. He took me. I, I'm told that the language here is that the Lord snuck up behind me and surprised me. He's, he's tending his flock. He's working the trees. He's working the ground as a farmer. And the Lord snuck up behind him. And the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people. He was a southern boy. Okay, I'm laying on pretty thick, but he really was of the southern kingdom. Not south states, but southern part of Israel. And he was called to preach to the northern kingdom during a time of great opulence. And for those of us who need some kind of a refresher in our biblical history at this time, which I do very often, Israel had experienced some of the most glorious years under the reign of David and his son Solomon, but following Solomon's death, the country was plunged into this horrible civil war, split into two halves, the northern and the southern kingdom. Well, that economic and social upheaval was hard for the people of God to climb out of, and for over a century and a half, the northern kingdom had quick turnovers in their dynasties as they had 12 kings in under 160 years. That doesn't sound too bad for those of us who are used to you know, presidential appointments and stuff like that, presidential terms, but that's about a 13-year reign for every single person on the throne in the northern kingdom. It was upheaval after upheaval. And finally, though, the northern kingdom of Israel began to experience traction under a man by the name of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam restored the borders of Israel and he brought 
affluence to the kingdom, to the northern kingdom of Israel in a way that no one had really seen since the days of Solomon. Now you might get the wrong impression that Jeroboam is a hero. He was politically. However, Jeroboam was not a good king. In fact, 2 Kings records that he did evil in God's sight and he was considered to be a chip off the old block from Israel's first king named Jeroboam the first who was the one who started the whole civil war. He led rebels against Solomon's throne over a century earlier. In fact, of both Jeroboam's, it's said that they made Israel sin. You know, it's one thing to sin yourself. It's quite another to make other people sin. And that's Jeroboam. But who cares about all of that? As long as the money is in the national treasury, as long as everyone has bellies full and there's a better standard of health among the general population, as long as all of that's enjoyed, who cares about whether Jeroboam does right in the eyes of God? He had, Jeroboam II, had made Israel a powerhouse that it once had been. So all was right with them in the kingdom of Israel. Even the priestly class agreed. I mean, sure, Jeroboam was, he wasn't their first choice. He had instituted and encouraged the worship of false god. Amos 5 lists a group of Mesopotamian gods that Israel had actually moved into the temple of Jehovah. Molech is one of those that's listed in there. That's the god that you had to sacrifice your child to in order to worship him. And sure, Jeroboam sat up in his palace lying on a bed of ivory while the poor were enslaved and tossed into debtors' prisons, which they had never they would never get out of for generations. But hey, you can't argue with his reign. Over 40 years of prominence Jeroboam has had, he's expanded the land seemingly every year. Jeroboam, he ain't perfect, but we'll take him. That's the political slogan of the day. The priestly class of Israel, pictured in the person of the man named Amaziah in chapter 7, had grown so cold and hard-hearted to the Lord that they had fallen right in line with Jeroboam's sewer-like doctrine and politic. So when Amos, red-necked and railing, shows up in the big city of Bethel, they didn't really understand what's all the issue. What's the problem? Everything's going well for us, Amos. You see, for about 17 verses that span Amos chapter 1 and 2, Amos was preaching about all the surrounding nations around them. Just scan over the chapter 1 and you'll see the strangely poetic language that Amos uses. It's this turn of phrase that's strange. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, the Lord will not turn away its punishment. On and on it goes, starting with Damascus, going into Gaza, into Tyre and Edom. The people of Ammon, they're called out. And then Moab is called out. Even Judah. And for the most part, Amos has attracted a pretty big crowd on the steps of the temple that day outside of Bethel. All of these supporters have come. And I'm sure that there's a few amens. That's right, Amos. You tell them, Amos. Those people are horrible over there. Especially the priests. Like Amos, they liked his preaching. I think we all like when the preacher preaches about other people. You supply the other. It could be issues of politics or family preference or nationality. It could be against people who sin differently from you. So long as it's preaching against other people, we're okay with it. 
We kind of like it, actually. It sort of makes us feel like we aren't so bad. It's what I have to caution young preachers against. I call it a, a red meat sermon where you give people what they want. It's kind of like chumming the waters for sharks. When people get a sermon where there's someone else's blood in the water, they kind of jump into the feeding frenzy and they, re, they rip them to shreds. And say, Yeah, those people are horrible. They're amening Amos's sermon. But after a chapter and a half, Amos preaches one of those sermons... He's hacking, spitting, jumping all over the place, kind of entertaining those northerners with his folksy turn of phrases. And then the Israelites, they're getting eaten up with all this. They're seeing what he's doing. They're not actually seeing what he's doing. Amos is actually working in ever-constricting concentric circles. Starting with the furthest from Israel, he's just preached against Damascus and Gaza. And then he closes the circle in a little bit more around Tyre and Edom and Ammon. And then he gets on to Judah. Well, these were Israel's kinsmen who had separated in the civil war. And round about now, you can imagine the people of Israel, they're about to you know, hand Amos the key to their fair city of Bethel. This guy's the real deal. He's pointing out all the hypocrisy and all of the sin against all these other people. But that's when Amos drives his message home. Because the real reason that Amos had come to Bethel was not on a sightseeing venture. It wasn't to rail against other people's sins, but against theirs. And it's right there, bullseye, Israel is the target. Oh, how the public opinion of preachers change when he just so happens to have your sin focus. And what follows after chapter 2, verse 5, is one of the most scathing sermons that is preserved in God's Word. Amos gets down to business and at Bethel, which literally means the house of God, he tells, him that they, he tells them that they need to clean house. In verse 6 of Amos 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and they pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. They thought the sermon was about other people. It wasn't about other people. That was the introduction, the segue. It's about them. Israel's sins are numerous. Their judges easily accepted petty bribes. Here in the passage it says that they took silver and gold and they also took a new pair of shoes. You could buy justice with a pair of shoes. Think about that. Or injustice. It throws the innocent into prison. They desire to own everything from everyone, including the very dust that covers the heads of the poor. Verse 7's language of them panting after the dust of the poor speaks to their insatiable greed. Their relationships are so perverted that they have enslaved temple prostitutes that both father and son abuse, all in the name of worshiping God. A practice that was so vile 
that it was only associated with the worship of other gods, yet Israel had tried to marry this perversion of worshiping other gods with also worshiping Jehovah's name. They steal the clothes of the poor. They use them as blankets and cushions to lie around on during observances of holy feasts. Let that sink in. Everything that they own has been gotten evilly. And they use them in their sacred services. These are sins. Not necessarily worse than all the other nations mentioned, although they are repugnant. The problem was that they were the same as all the other nations mentioned. And they knew better. That's the point. Israel's sins, they were no accidental misstep that they had fallen into. They knew who God was. They had His law accessible to them, and yet they chose to pervert His worship and break His commands. It's no wonder that centuries later, while standing before a congregation of their descendants, Jesus would warn in Luke 12.48, but He who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with the few, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Israel, you have been given so much, and you're just like all the other nations. They weren't accidental miscarriages of justice. This was a system based upon who you knew and what you could get. This wasn't slight misunderstandings of the doctrine of God's law. This was a gross upheaval of all that God had commanded. And because they knew better, God would deal harshly with them. In fact, He already had dealt harshly with them. Amos doesn't hold back in his preaching. Listen to his sermon against the women of Israel who applaud and enable and fawn over their men who do these sins. I'll go ahead and tell you, Amos 4.1, don't use this turn of phrase in your everyday language. Hear this word, Amos says, you cows of Bashan. Woo. I wonder if Amos was married. I don't know. Um, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, behold, the days shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Don't just focus in on the cow part. The warning here is Amos is saying, God's going to get you back. It's not going to be pretty. He's going to bring you back. He's going to hook you like a fish and He's going to reel you in and you're going to struggle all the way, but you're going to be His. You're going to come back to Him fighting all the while. In the meantime, it's not that God is desperate. He just underlines the lengths that He is going to go to and has gone to to try and get their attention. In the very midst of their affluence, God had sent strong warnings to try and wake them up from their spiritual slumber. The passage of Scripture that I already read, Amos chapter 4, verses 6-11, through 11, I read this as God saying, I have done everything 
to shake you and you still won't return to me. In verse 6, he says, I've given you cleanness of teeth. And that's sarcastic. Don't you love when God's sarcastic as long as it's not directed towards you? I've given you cleanness. you got the best teeth ever. And the reason is because you don't have anything to eat. I've given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. They lack bread in all your places. Verse 7 says, I've withheld rain from you to try to get your attention. Verse 8 says, two or three cities have to wander to other cities to drink water. You've diverted water to get to a certain spot so that you could have water even when God takes away water or if you tried to do it. Verse 9, God says, I have blasted you with blight and mildew. So just about time harvest comes. Oh yeah, here comes a disease and you can't eat any of it. And later on in verse 9, he says that the locusts have devoured pretty much everything that you harvested one year. In verse 10, he says, I sent among you a plague, the likes of which are similar to Egypt's plagues. Your young men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. Verse 11, he says, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You take in the biblical mindset the worst two cities that are imagined and the way that God dealt most treacherously with any group of people in all of history is Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I've done it to you, Israel, and you have not returned to me. To famine and hunger and natural disaster and obvious divine judgment, the people of God went right on sinning, disregarding all of the warning signs, living their lives, And it all crescendos to the central theme of the book of Amos as this country preacher raises his voice on the steps of the elaborately decorated temple of Bethel and he cries in verse 12, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. O Israel, Prepare to meet thy God. It's a sobering plea, isn't it? It's got the language of a trial where a criminal would be ushered into the courtroom where his fate would be decided by a judge. It's a cry that every single one of us needs to hear this morning in person, online, right now, shared later in the week. The line, prepare to meet Thy God is one that we all have to deal with at some point in our lives. I'm not exactly sure why. I've got a few inklings as to why, but I don't know all the reasons. But Recently, I have been struck with the brevity of life. We live as though tomorrow will never come. Though we'll never die. And every now and then, the Lord will put something in our life that reminds us of our mortality. You know, the psalmist declares that it's allotted to man three score and ten years. If you're deficient in your old English like me, that means 70 years. You're given about 70 years. And it's remarkable that with all the medical advancements that we've enjoyed over the last 100 years, the average lifespan of a human being in the world today hovers around 69.8 years. It's interesting. 70 to 75 years is what you're granted today with all the medical conveniences. 
We could quibble about what about that extra five years that women seem how to, to have, but point is, you've got an expiration date on you. We don't like to hear it, but you will go the way of all men. The author of Hebrews reminds us that we are all destined to die, and as sure as that statement is, he continues, and after this, the judgment. You and I will stand before a righteous and a just judge at the end of all our days, and we will give an account. Are you prepared to meet your God? Throughout the rest of the book, Amos details three things that we all must do in order to be prepared to meet God. The first one is seek Him. Seek God. Strangely enough, if this was the only thing that the people of Israel had heard, if this was the only thing that the people of Israel had done, if they just sought God, they would have never needed to do anything else. Amos chapter 5, verse 4 says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. I don't want to oversimplify what can be a very complicated and arduous worldview, but I'm convinced that one of the top reasons that most people choose atheism or agnosticism is because they do not want to believe or trust in the Lord. It's not that there's a lack of evidence about God's Word. It's because they have no desire to look at, seek, or align with this God who calls Himself their Creator. I sat across from a Christian apologist several years ago. And I heard him say, for some people, there will simply never be enough evidence or unction for them to want to believe in God. Again, I know it might seem like an oversimplification, but Jeremiah preaches the exact same way in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. He says, seek me and find me, or the Lord says, seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Paul, when he's preaching about the unknown God in Athens on Mars Hill, he claimed the exact same thing in Acts 17, verse 27, that we should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. He encourages us, He urges us to seek God, to grope for Him, to do everything possibly that you can to find Him. And before resigning yourself to the belief that God's dead or God never existed, chase Him down in the pages of every book you come across and every line of Scripture that you read. Seek Him. But notice that Amos doesn't end there. He goes on to warn in Amos chapter 5, verse 4. He says, For thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, Seek Me and live. Verse 5, But do not seek Bethel, 
nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. And when Amos encourages us to seek God, he's not saying necessarily, hey, go get you some religion. Not at all. In fact, Israel had made religion the end-all, be-all of their lives. They had made Bethel the place of religion. The craziest thing about this whole book, these nine chapters of the book of Amos, is that it seems that the people of God were genuinely surprised that the Lord wasn't happy with them. Father and son abusing the same woman in temple prostitution. God, you're not okay with that? No, I'm not. They seemed so surprised at all of this. The problem was is that while they were committing all of these gross sins against the poor and all of those sins of immorality and injustice, they were still attending church. In fact, there was a group of Israelites who in Amos chapter 5, verse 18 said, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord equals judgment. They had fooled themselves into thinking that because they had kept up their religion, because they had sung and they had sacrificed and they had attended all of the religious observances, then everything was going to shake out for them on that day of judgment. I just can't wait until the day of the Lord when God makes all things right again. They had no idea, but God says starkly in that passage, for you it will be a day of darkness and not light. It's reminiscent of what the New Testament says when Jesus says that there will be many who say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And yet I will respond to them, depart from me, I never knew you. They'd sung the songs of heaven. Maybe even preached about it. And they get to glory. They see the judge on the throne and they think, I'm so excited. And Jesus says, ah. I don't know who you are. They had fooled themselves into thinking, I'm okay because of this list of religious rituals that I have done. To them, you can hear the righteous wrath of God seething in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, as he says, I hate. It's not a strong enough word. I despise your feast days. I don't savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I won't hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Church, i got to tell you, seek God not religious ritual. Seek God. Do not be satisfied with a weekend trip to church to make you feel like you and God are all good. Seek Him above all else. 
Oh, how I beg the Lord that he will never say of new hope, I hate, I despise your services. I can't stand your homecomings. I do not accept your tithes and your financial gifts. I have to stop my ears in disgust every time I hear you sing in the congregational singing. Every time those guitars are struck, I've got to walk away from you. I hate, I despise it. Say, Cora, are you angry? I'm not angry. I've been worked over this week because you got to know my default spiritually is to just go back to religious ritual and I'm telling you, it's worthless and pointless. Seek God! And everything else falls in. When we truly and sincerely do, we cannot help but respond with actual life change we turn from what we once were and who He is. Amos 5.14 Seek good, not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you've spoken. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph or the remnant of Israel. It may be that the Lord will be gracious to you. This life change, this about face, it's a single word that you're going to find in nearly every book of the Bible. Repent. I once was walking this way and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and I turned from that way and I turned to Christ. But this wasn't just a once-for-all decision. This is an everyday turning all the way back in 1517 when martin luther pinned his 95 theses to the door of the wittenberg church he did so because he thought the church was teaching this strange unbiblical doctrine of repentance about you just got to make a decision one time a long time ago and you're fine after that like it's a historical event and that's why the very first on his list of issues that he had with the popular church of his day dealt with repentance he wrote when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. If you say, well, I know I'm a Christian because about 400 years ago I made this decision at this certain place. I prayed this certain prayer with this certain person. I'm telling you, if you are not actively right now repenting, you need to seek God and repent. Repentance is all of life. It's not a one-time event. It's an everyday task. Christian, all of our lives is to be one of constant turning from sin and turning to God. And the picture that Amos is painting here is of a people who once loved evil and hated good. Their repentance would make such a stark contrast in their lives to choose the exact opposite. To where now they hate evil and they love good as defined by God. That's life change. Finally, as simple as it may sound, don't, over, don't overcomplicate it, I guess. Amos didn't. Country preacher. Ask forgiveness. Ask forgiveness. Amos chapter 7, verse 7, uh, verse 2. 
And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, Oh Lord God, forgive. I pray forgive. Oh, that Jacob may stand. Or a better way to translate that is how in the world could Jacob could how in the world could Jacob stand? He's too small. I don't have time to get into all the visions that God had given Amos, but suffice it to say that in every single one, Israel does not measure up. He is too small. Israel, you've come up short. You're too little. And so it is with us. As good a person as you might think you are, every single one of us is inflicted and infected with sin born to us at birth because we have the rebel Adam's blood coursing through our veins. And on top of all of that, we're not just helpless victims of circumstances. We have chosen sin. We choose it. And so we come up short. We, in ourselves, are never enough. And we all must have the forgiveness of God. And here's the beauty of it. That He offers forgiveness to all. This is not for a select group or a certain clique. This forgiveness is for you and me. The two times that Amos is quoted in the New Testament, they're both both in the book of Acts. The first is by that first martyr, Stephen, who before he died, he got a great sermon in. Before he was murdered, he got a great sermon in. He preached the entirety of the Old Testament. He had a captive audience. They thought that they had taken him captive. Oh no. He had taken them captive. And he from Abraham all the way to the cross and the resurrection, preached about the goodness of God, salvation by grace and faith. He quotes Amos. But it's also used by James at the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15 tells us this story that Paul had gone out to all these different cities, all these Gentile cities, and those people didn't look like the Israelites. They didn't look like Jews. Circumcision, that was like the least of their worries. They didn't look, they didn't talk, they didn't act like the Jews. And so they had this major question, could these new people who claim to believe the resurrection, could they be true believers if they're so very different from us? And after hearing Paul preach at the Jerusalem Council, James stands up and in Acts 15, verse 16 says a quote from the book of Joel, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. This forgiveness is for you. And so while God is taking Israel to task in the book of Amos, He is also telling them, if you will seek Me, I will give you Myself. 
If you will repent, you will find real life worth living. If you will ask for my forgiveness, I will not only grant it to you, but I will make it possible so that all nations can hear the name of the Savior. Aren't you thankful? His forgiveness is for us. And not just a select few in a different country. You've been patient and you've been kind. I've crammed nine chapters of the book of Amos into about a 35, 45-minute sermon this morning. I want to leave you with a warning. If you disregard Israel, and I think the timbre of that could also be applied to a church house where we have people sitting on our pews They're trusting in religious rituals. They're trusting in just being a good American citizen and all that stuff. They have no relationship with God. If you disregard, if you do not seek the Lord, if you do not repent, and if you do not ask for for forgiveness, Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God. I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread. Not a famine of water. But of hearing the words of the Lord. You think it's bad not being able to eat? You think it's bad having to go two towns over to get something to drink? I will send a famine in your land where no one will hear the Word of God. Verse 12. They shall wander from sea to sea, seeking the Word of God. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the Word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. If you don't listen to anything else this morning, please give me the next five minutes of your life. Please, I beg of you. If you were to map the spread of Christianity from first century A.D., you would find that it swept from the Middle East westward into Europe, across the Atlantic into both North and South America. And what we're finding is that the expansion of evangelistic efforts have grown exponentially in the past 40 years into Asia a place that had, seen, had just a few years ago been closed to the Gospel. There are more people coming to Jesus in China today than any other country. That's something to praise God for. However, missiologists have also found there seems to be a wake seems to be a famine left behind in those regions where it, Christianity moves from. Think of the Middle East. The very birth point of the resurrection for millennia closed to the Gospel. Think of Europe. One of the most sending places in all of the world. Missionaries came from Britain by the droves to all the world. And look at Europe today. This isn't some 
pro-America tirade. This is look at history and see where they are religiously now. Largely an atheistic and agnostic society. Christianity swept through and now there seems to be a famine of hearing the Word of the Lord. And in North America, it came. And we had great awakenings after great awakenings. And we have had warnings after warnings. And now, God, I hope this is not true. He knows my heart. It seems as though the shift is now going into Asia. And I'll even take you one better. It seems to be getting back into the Middle East as I hear reports of hundreds of previous Muslims hearing the Gospel, seeing miraculous things happen, and they give their life to Jesus. It seems as though the Gospel has circumnavigated the globe and it's gone back to the Middle East. And i got to wonder, where are we, America? Are are we experiencing a famine of hearing the Word of the Lord? That is not up for me to decide. I have no idea. But I do know that if that is the case, it's in accordance with God's Word. That if you don't seek Him, if you don't repent, if you don't ask for His forgiveness, it moves on to others who will. And you say, what does it matter, Corey? What's the big deal? I'm saved. I'm a believer. My children are. Maybe even some of you are old enough in here. you got your grandchildren sitting on the same pew with you this morning. Praise God for that. Maybe we might even have a few great-grandchildren in here. They're in the faith. Praise God for that. Could it be that your neglect to be prepared before your God will in just a generation or two leave a famine from hearing the Word of the Lord in your own home. I know it's strong. I know it's heavy this morning. Prepare to meet thy God. It cannot be a light and encouraging sermon. Christian, Hear me. Seek Him. Seek Him. Be repenting of your sins. If you're here in our congregation, you don't know Jesus. Don't leave. Said, Psalms 90 tells us three score and ten seventy years. We've been reminded this week not all of us get 70 years. Not all of us get seven years. Prepare to meet thy God. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.